actually go pretty good into uh, chapter 6 here. Now, uh, Joshua chapter, end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is the very famous chapter of the Battle of Jericho. And I use that term lightly because it was hardly a battle. Um, you guys have all probably heard this story before, and so I'm going to move through it fairly quick, and I'm going to pick out some points that really kind of came to my attention. And I don't want to say we're going to skip over some of it, but we basically all know what happens, right? The Israelites march around Jericho for seven days. Seventh day, they march around seven times. The walls come tumbling down. We've all sang the song. So that's the Battle of Jericho in a nutshell. But it's the behind-the-scenes stuff and what God was doing here. And it's really quite a fascinating chapter. So with that being said, let's finish up chapter 5, though. It says, And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, this is something kind of interesting here. We're introduced to a guy that's obviously kind of an important character here. Now, I just got to share a real quick story about this. Back when I was teaching through Genesis, Genesis is the first book of the Bible ever, ever taught through. Uh, back in 1996, my wife and I got married, and we decided to start up a Bible study in our house when we lived in McClure. So we started up this Bible study in our house, and I, had, I didn't know anything. I mean, just we got together as a group of us Christians, and we said, let's just get together and study the Bible. And so it started out, the first Bible study was me and Dawn and uh, like two other people. So it was just four of us. And then God just started growing it and growing it. And it was really cool. You know, Christian Bree started coming. Renee Amador started coming. And it was really neat. Uh, this fellowship went on there for a few years. So anyway, I was teaching through Genesis. I had no idea what I was talking about. I've never gone to seminary. Didn't know these fancy words. And so there's this word that is an appearance of the second figure of the Godhead. This is the technical term in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany, if you want to sound really smart. So this is a theophany here. In verses 13 through 15, this is an appearance of the second figure in the Godhead, Jesus, in the Old Testament. Now, the problem was I had read the word, but I didn't know how to say the word. So I called it a theophany. And now the problem is nine people out of ten don't even know what a theophany is. So I said, here's a theophany. And I, I'm just saying that I go on, and there was one person at the study that just very quietly raised his hand and said, I think you mean theophany. And it was just very, very embarrassing. And so every time I come now to this word, in my mind I'm thinking it's not theophany, it's a theophany. So if you want to sound intelligent, this is a theophany, an appearance of the second figure of the Godhead in the Old Testament. This is an appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate here. Now, how do we know this is somebody that's a bigwig? Well, we know it's a bigwig for a couple of reasons. Look at verse 15. Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Okay. Number two, verse 14, you may say, well, it's just an angel. No, look at verse 14. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. There's only one person that you worship, and that's God. If you look in the book of Revelation, when John fell at the feet of an angel, the angel said, no, get up off your feet. You don't worship me. And if you ever want to get into a battle with somebody, be it a Jehovah Witness or whatever, that doesn't like to believe that Jesus is God, oh, there's a lot of verses that really shoot down that idea. Take them to the New Testament just show them the verses where Jesus accepted worship. There's only one person that can accept worship, and that's God. And so by him accepting worship and it being holy ground, this is a picture of God here appearing in the Old Testament in the form of this. And you know, if you want to get a little bit deeper studying, like I said, this is a big chapter 
And you have to do it all at once or you lose the context of it. And like I said, we're going to hit things harder and other things we're going to skip over. But if you want a little further study on your own, compare this with when Moses was called. It's a really neat comparison. Because Moses was called at the burning bush, and what did God tell Moses? Take off your sandals for the feet you're standing on is holy ground. And at that time, God says, okay, Moses, I'm now going to really mightily use you. And now here at Joshua, Joshua really gets into the battle, if you will. So some really neat similarities there between the calling of Moses and the calling of Joshua, God's appearance to them both, and the Lord doing it. Now I want to break down a little bit here of what is said. Look at Joshua. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Legit question. Joshua didn't know who this guy was. Are you friend or foe? Look at the answer of God in verse 14. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. He doesn't answer the question. Now, isn't that interesting? You know why? Because it's not the question of whose side are you on. God doesn't have to answer that. The answer is, Joshua, you're on my side. It's not that I'm on your side. You're on my side. You may say, well, that's just wording. No, I think that's very important. See, a lot of times as humans, when we get into arguments, what do we like to do? We like to separate people into groups. You either agree with me or you don't agree with me. I just had a conversation with somebody the other day. In fact, it was Dawn. And we're going through this. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but it kind of slipped out. Dawn and I were having this conversation. And I was saying, hey, here's the situation. And she was kind of defending this person. And I said, by you defending this person, you are taking this person's side. Because in my mind, you're either for me or against me. And really what the Bible says, if you go through Proverbs, we're going to get to these Proverbs in a little bit, there's really a third side. And that third side is called the truth. And what you have here is God says, Joshua, it's not that I'm for you or against you. I'm the commander. You're with me. And you know my little pet peeve here. And if somebody has this bumper sticker on your car, I apologize. That little bumper sticker of God is my co-pilot. God is not your co-pilot. You want God to be the pilot. You just want to be along for the ride. Co-pilot almost dignifies we're on the same page. And you know what? We are on the same page with God, but not on the same page when it comes to authority. So God's response here is very interesting. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I'm the one in charge. Real quick, New Testament, if you want to go deeper with this, write down Hebrews 4.16 if you're taking notes. Hebrews 4.16 says we can boldly go through the throne of grace right now. You don't have to take your sandals off anymore, but you're always on holy ground because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. See, I think sometimes by getting into these Old Testament passages, you get a glimpse of stuff that we have no concept of. I mean, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us as believers. And so therefore, every day we have access to the Holy of Holies. Every day I get to have communion with Jesus Christ. But yet back during the Old Testament, this is a pretty big deal. And you also get a bigger picture here of when Jesus came down on the earth in the form of a man, no one ever had to take their sandals off. He became one of us, but still kept the deity of being God. It's an amazing thing. So these little three verses here, verses 13 through 15, you could spend a whole lot of time studying this out. But really what this comes is this is a theophany. This is an appearance of the second figure of the Godhead in the Old Testament. This is a deeper calling into Joshua's life. But you also see from our perspective today, too, it's not, God, are you with me? Or are you against me? God is asking, where are you? See, so often I see people getting angry at God. Why? They're getting angry at God because God's not on my side. It's not the question. Is are you on the side of God? Because he's on the side of the truth. And this is a really a stepping stone onto what's going to happen here in Jericho. So anybody got any quick questions, comments about verses 13 through 15 before we go on? Yeah, Kathy.
Oh, the I am there? Yeah. Mine says, um, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord. Is that, is that New Living Translation? Yeah. I'll pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I like New Living Translation. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, but yeah, my, yeah mine says, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord. So, anybody else? Yeah, Howard. Uh, T A theophany. Could you use that in a sentence? <laughs> theophany. T H E O P H A N Y. Theophany. You used an F. No, I'm pretty sure it's P H. I'm pretty sure it's T H E O P. And if somebody has a study Bible out there with a the commentary in the bottom, it may actually say theophanies. Did I say? Did I spell it right? Ha <laughs> ha. It's a good night. Let's just quit while we're ahead. Yeah, John. Uh, Theophanes? That's a made-up word. I can say whatever. I, I can spell that whatever I want there. All right, so we have this established now. Now Joshua, who is in charge of the army, gets his marching orders from really who's in charge of the army. Verse uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, I just want to stop right there for a second. That's the fear of the Lord. I mean, that's how afraid these people were of Israel. I mean, these people had crossed the Jordan. We've already talked about this, that the fear of God was on this land. These people were so afraid of Israel, they said, we're just shutting down, and we're not going to come out, and no one's coming in. Now, it'd be really simple to say, well, just skip Jericho. What's the point? Well, the problem is, if you skip Jericho, and you just go around this militarily, well, then you're going to have the enemy in front of you, and you're also going to have the enemy behind you. That's not good. Number two, if you skip Jericho... <clears throat> And let's say Jericho doesn't come back to get you. Well, once the flooding of the Jordan goes down, you're leaving also your uh, wife and kids defenseless. So the way the war worked back then is you had to take it piece by piece, step by step. And that's exactly what they did here. Jericho is the first thing. Jericho needs to fall. And they're afraid. They're afraid of what God's going to do here. And you know what? I have to be reminded of this sometimes because I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes I look around the world and I sometimes think, God, are we on the losing side? Because sometimes it really looks like we're losing this fight, Lord. I mean, it really looks like the world's winning, immorality's winning. And I, let's just be honest, you know, once you get closer to Halloween, it's just like, Lord, what's going on here? Is the world just falling apart? And I have to stop and think, no, Jericho is scared out of their mind. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the Bible says. Jericho was scared. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Now, if I was Joshua, I would say, Wait, no, you haven't. You have not given us anything. He is still securely locked up in there. But look from God's perspective. From God's perspective, the battle's already won. Isn't that pretty cool? That's why Paul can call you and I glorified. I tell you right now, I am not glorified. And I'm not picking on you guys, but you're not glorified. But yet, when Paul is writing through the Spirit, Paul looks past the present age and looks to the future, and he sees what we're going to become. And that's why Paul can say that. That's a pretty impressive thing. And you know what? There's that wonderful, wonderful verse where God basically says, well, how is it worded here, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, I look at myself sometimes in the spiritual mirror, and it's like, Lord, are you sure about this? There are better men and women out there than me to do things. Lord, why are you doing this? And God says, I don't see what you are. I see what you can become. That's a pretty cool thing. That's a loving Savior that says, I'm going to keep molding you and shaping you into what you're supposed to be. 
You know, maybe right now you're not where you're supposed to be uh, spiritually. Maybe your marriage isn't. Maybe your witness isn't. Maybe your devotions isn't. But you know what? Isn't it a beautiful thing that God says, I can still mold you and make you into something? See, from God's perspective in verse 2, Jericho's already defeated. Now, from Joshua's perspective, not yet. But from God's perspective, it is. So, kind of picking up the pace here. What you're going to see here from verses 3 on is God says, you know what, get your men of war, and you're going to march around this town uh, for six days, and you're not going to say anything. On the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and you're going to blow the trumpets, and everything's going to come tumbling down. What a battle plan. What a very interesting battle plan. And if you want to look at this, I find this interesting. From verse 4 of chapter 6 through verse 13 of chapter 6, the word ark is mentioned ten times. The key to the battle of Jericho is the ark. And why is that the key? Because that's the presence of God. In the Old Testament, that ark represented God's presence being there. For us today, where is the presence of God? In you and I. Isn't that an amazing thing? So that ark was the key battle piece. The battle is won through God's presence being there. Now that is a huge point that you can take a lot of different ways. Just like today, the battle is won by God's presence being there. If you have a church that does not have the presence of God in it, there's going to be no spiritual victory. If you have a marriage without the presence of God in it, there's going to be no spiritual victory. If you have a life without the presence of God in it, there's no spiritual victory. One of the things I say at every single wedding, as I quote 1 Corinthians 3.11, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then I always say, a marriage not built on Jesus can't last, and a life not built on Jesus can't last. Because that's what it comes down to. Well, the ark is the picture of God's presence being there and the victory that comes. So, God realizes the battle is won in verse 2. Where's the battle actually won? Verse 6. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to him, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed, march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. The battle is won in faith right there in verse 6. Now, you've got to look. See, we're looking at this now thousands of years later. We're looking at this from the eyes of Sunday school lessons and little movies and flannel graphs and all this other type of stuff. Look at it from the perspective of a 28-year-old Israelite man in his prime that is married with a few kids back home and he's ready to take the promised land. This is the first battle, the first battle, and you're up against Jericho, huge Jericho. And this is the battle plan. March around it in silent for six days. Seventh day, march around it seven times, and everybody let out a shout, and God's going to take care of it. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I don't like to add things to the Bible, but I'm going to be willing to bet you there's this one guy that said, Are you sure? Are you sure? This is my life. This is the life of my wife and kids. This is everything. And you're telling me the whole battle plan is just to walk around this town in silence. And then all of a sudden, the seventh day, walk around it seven times and shout. Now, if that is not faith, I don't know what is. And you know what? Same thing still happens today. Sometimes God calls you and I to do something that makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense in the world. And when God calls you to do it, what's the best thing to do? Is in faith, just do it. You know what? One of my biggest prayers I pray all the time is usually, Lord, why? And if you really stop and think, is why am I asking why? Because I need reassurance. And really what am I saying is I need reassurance is really what I'm saying. Lord, I lack the faith just to trust you blindly. See, I look back through a lot of these Bible stories, 
and, and you know, we get up to the Jordan. It's time to cross the Jordan. And God says, okay, get the uh, priests together. And, uh, you know, they're going to walk through the Jordan. It's going to become dry land. If I was Joshua, I'd be like, okay, get the priests together. But first, Kate, can we have a couple guys go out along the side? See if there's a shallower place to go. You know, Jericho. Okay, yeah, we'll walk around. But, you know, while we're walking around, scout out for weakness. So that way when we walk around here. See, the problem is I think I have an answer. I think I have an opinion. And I think I'm kind of smart. And God says, no. He says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And is this not the, I almost said dumbest, but that's about the best word I can think of. Seriously, is this not about the dumbest battle plan you've ever seen? I mean, it really honestly is. And as they do this, they walk around. Now look at this. Verse 10, Now Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. Now, we're dealing with tens of thousands of men now walking around a town in utter, complete silence. Now, one thing I will say, if I was in Jericho and I saw this happening, I'm not going to lie to you, that would freak me out a little bit, is that literally the army is just circling me, not saying a word. And not just doing it day one, verse 11, so they had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around at once, and they came into the camp and lodged at the camp. I, 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 don't know, I don't mean to be repetitive on this, but you've got to put yourself in this position. Everybody get up. Everybody march around it. Everybody go back and sit down. Verse 12, Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests, verse 13, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord, went out continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the camp once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. That's faith. And that's funny because the world would call that stupidity. The world would call that ignorance. But you know what? That's faith. And there's not much that's changed today. I mean, the world looks at us and says, I can't believe that you as Christians will do that. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. Give up prime time on a Wednesday night to come out to church. Can't believe you as Christians would do what? Get up early in the morning to spend time with the Lord. I can't believe you as Christians would stay in that loveless marriage because you feel the Lord's going to work it out. I can't believe you as Christians would be nice to that person that is just utterly spiteful. That is the equivalent to walking around Jericho. It doesn't make any sense according to the world. And if you try to explain it to the world, no one's going to get it. And if you want to go to West Point and talk about battle strategy and say, here, here's a strategy. Let's just walk around the city for six days and the seventh day walk around seven times and blow the trumpet. You'd be laughed out of there. But yet, one of the greatest victories the world has ever seen was done in faith. So what happens? Well, we know what happens. Verse 15, It came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in that same manner. On the day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpet that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now stop right there for a second, verse 16. When, when Joshua says, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, no, he hasn't. The walls are still up. I mean, that, that, that is a statement of faith. Shout for the Lord has given you the city. I'd probably be one of those guys saying, you shout. I'm going to see what's going to happen. No, they in faith had to shout, believing that the Lord was going to do it. I've heard a pastor say one time, faith is the trigger on the gun. The gun is loaded, but until you have faith, it's hard to pull the trigger. And you know what? Them yelling was their idea of releasing that faith, and I'm not trying to sound ultra-Pentecostal here, but the truth of the matter is, by them yelling in faith, they were saying, Lord, we trust that you are going to do this. 
And that's exactly what God did. Verse 17, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord into destruction. In it and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Now, real quick here, verse 18. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you have become accursed when you take out the accursed things and make the camp of Israel curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They are coming into the treasury of the Lord. See, Joshua gives a few battle orders here. Hey, guys. You're not in there to loot the city. God got this victory. Don't steal anything. Well, without letting the cat out of the bag, we know what happens in chapter 7. Someone took something, Achan, and that doomed Israel, and we'll get into that next week. But the orders were clear. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but if you have sympathy for Achan next week, because Achan dies for taking something, God made it pretty clear in verses 18 and 19, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, so, they go in there. Real quick point I just want to share about this. In victory, defeat is always lurking around the corner. Okay, So they had an amazing victory here, but defeat was as simple as somebody taking something. Same thing is still around today. You can have a great spiritual victory, but defeat is lurking at every victory. So you get up there and you do a great message. Victory. Well, the defeat of pride can come pretty quick. You know what? You keep your cool at work. You don't say anything. Great victory. Yeah, but defeat is waiting for you the next day to test you and try you again. Wherever you're at, that defeat is trying to bring itself in. An amazing victory happened here in Joshua 6. One person did one stupid thing that brought down a whole nation. We'll get into that next week. But defeat is lurking at every victory. And real quick here, in judgment... There's always a grace. Because look at the battle plan here. Verse 20, So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout. The wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, at the edge of the sword. Now, if you heard me say this, and I said you're going to hear me say it all the time throughout the book of Joshua, there are some people that's going to focus on verse 21 and say, how can a God of love allow that to happen? What have we said before? God had given Jericho numerous opportunities to repent. They chose not to. And if you don't believe me, look at the rest here. Verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has swore to you. Remember Rahab. Joshua said, Rahab, if you're faithful to us, we will be faithful to you. Well, now it happens. Verse 23, And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. If you look in the Bible, in the midst of judgment, there's always grace. Always grace in the midst of judgment. When you read through Revelation and you're literally talking about billions of people dying, there's always salvation. You got the 144,000. You got the two witnesses. You got angels flying overhead proclaiming the gospel. God never sends judgment without an opportunity of grace. He never does. So when somebody talks about how can a God of love do that, I always think, yeah, he always gives you an opportunity. Jericho had an opportunity. Rahab is proof that they had opportunity. The whole city is shut up in fear. Why? Because they heard what God did. They could have chose to accept. Instead, they chose to reject. 
Now, I'm not trying to be cold and callous, but the same thing happens today. Everybody has an opportunity to hear. Some people choose to accept. The other people shut themselves up like Jericho. and They're not letting God in. Judgment's going to come. Rahab is a picture there of faith. And one step further, verse 26, Then Joshua charged them at the time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundations with his firstborn, with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. If you want to further study, write down 1 Kings 16.34. 1 Kings 16.34. That prophecy in verse 26 happened. The guy by the name of Hiel went and rebuilt Jericho, and uh, his firstborn and his youngest son died. It's exactly what happened. Because the picture of Jericho here is Jericho is a picture of sin. It's a picture of the world. Rahab is a picture of us and faith, a harlot, somebody with a bad background. Remember that when we talked about Rahab? We're all Rahabs. We all bring a past into our walk with Christ. We're a picture of Rahab being pulled out of the world, and Jericho is a picture of the world being destroyed. Well, the curse here is who would want to rebuild the world? Who would want to stay in the city of sin and filth and flesh? Jericho is a picture of that, and it was completely flattened and utterly destroyed. Now, if we could stop right at the end of chapter 6, oh, it'd be great. But as we said earlier, defeat is lurking in every victory. Chapter 7 is a chapter of defeat. I hate to say it. It's a little bit of a downer of a chapter. But yet they had the victory until sin came and got the best of them, and we'll get into that next week. So Jericho, great story here. It's a great story of faith. I'm telling you right now, if you are struggling with something right now, be it personal, be it emotional, be it spiritual, be it physical, I don't know what it is. I encourage you to take a Jericho moment for a little bit and say, okay, Lord, in faith I'm giving this over to you. I know that doesn't make sense to the world, but in faith, Lord, I'm going to trust that you're going to work through this and I will be obedient to what you called me. And you know what? Sometimes that obedience is very humbling. Walking around the city for seven days was a pretty humbling thing for Israel. But God says in obedience, in obedience there will be victory. So whatever God is calling you to do tonight, I encourage you to be obedient in it. I encourage you to have faith in it. And I encourage you to not look at the walls of Jericho. Because the walls will come tumbling down in faith. So often we are intimidated by the walls. The people in the walls are scared to death. Because the commander of the army of the Lord was already there and said, the victory is yours. So in faith we believe that, in faith we trust that, and we walk around Jericho in faith and saying, okay, Lord, I will be obedient to what you said. And it isn't it nice to know that we're still the harlots that get saved out of the world. I love that part. By God's grace and mercy, we're pulled out of that. You may have any final questions, comments here. Yeah, Megan. What's the difference between faith and trust? Well, the best definition of faith is the Bible's own definition of faith. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. So faith is an element of I am having faith that I can't see this, I don't see what's going on there. Trust is putting that faith into action. You know, it's the classic example, and let me just get that verse there because I want to make sure that I quoted that right. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, faith is, is knowing and trusting God. They kind of go one and one. You can have faith that your car is going to start, but when you stick that key in the ignition, you're turning it, you're trusting it's going to work. So faith is that idea of, okay, we have faith that God can give us the victory here in Jericho. Trusting in that faith is now I'm going to march around it and shout when God says shout. So trust is almost like putting faith in action, if you will. Yeah.
Well, um, manna. Yeah, they, they lived on manna. They lived on manna. They lived on their shoes not wearing out. They lived on things like that. But, see, now we're getting to a deeper issue. Is it, a, you know, it's still a miracle of God, but if it's something you saw every single day, you probably take that miracle for granted a little bit. Their whole life consisted of manna. They, they were not the group that came out of Egypt and all of a sudden God miraculously got them manna. They were born in the wilderness. Their whole life consisted of every morning going out and gathering manna. So they probably didn't fully grasp the miracle of what that is. That's personal opinion. So Their shoes actually grew with their feet. I, I, you know, see, the thing is, you're right. I don't know how to answer, I don't know how to answer that question. You're right. Their, their shoes didn't wear out. I, I don't know what happened with that. That's, that's a very... That's like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? You know, I mark that one down, and when you get up to heaven, ask them. I mean, that's a good question. Maybe as one of the older ones died, the older generation died off. Maybe they're like, hey, look at Jethro. When he croaks, I'm getting his shoes. I don't know, you know, but that's, John, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that one. So, anybody else have anything they want to say here before we close up? Alrighty, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to you now, we are all facing Jericho's. And, uh, Lord, let's just be honest, some of us are facing Jericho's without much faith. Um, Lord, I know in my own life right now I see some pretty big walls, and I don't know if those walls are ever going to come down. Lord, in faith we just trust that you're going to move, you're going to work. Lord, I want to pray for the people here tonight that are doubting, that are discouraged, and Jericho is just intimidating to them. Lord, just pray that we can march around it in faith and trust you. Lord, I also want to pray, too, for just those people stuck in Jericho, those uh, the harlots, Lord, that we were and sometimes still are. Lord, pull them out of there, Lord, and just pray that your grace and mercy would speak to their hearts that they would choose to want to have a relationship with you. And, Lord, just as you also told the nation of Israel, Lord, we don't want to touch anything left in Jericho, Lord. We don't want to cling to the world in any way whatsoever. We just want to cling to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And, Lord, thank you for putting up with us. We really do, Lord, love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.